0: When I was first thinking about the concept of the podcast for CFO Bookshelf, one of the first people I wanted to interview was Dave Kellogg. Dave is the former CEO of Host Analytics, and I've been following his blog for years. It's Kellblog.com. He's a great writer. He's a great speaker, and I love hearing him interviewed. And we got lucky, fortunate. And what an interview it was Dave Kellogg, and that is coming up next. Good morning, Bruce Reed. You are the amazing, remarkable, first ever CFO for
1: Practice Link. How's that sound, Bruce? That is, that's the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me. You're also very good at it, too.
0: Now, that's my opinion. I, I'm sure your boss, the founder, Ken Allman, might have a different opinion, but I'm just saying behind Ken's back, you are outstanding at it.
1: Well, Ken sees me day in and day out and nobody's perfect and we always have room to grow. So, I, I appreciate your kind words and I also appreciate... Um, honest and accurate feedback. So, it's all good. We have an interview with Dave
0: Kellogg. He is the former chief executive officer for Host Analytics. They've now rebranded. They now call their business, uh, and I'm, I'm assuming it's the business and the product, is planful. And so, if you work in the FP&A world, uh, if you do a lot of uh, consolidations, and then, and then you're doing your budgeting, i.e. planning, uh, you may be a... You're you're either familiar with the what used to be Host Analytics, or you're using it currently. So Dave, Dave, and I giving my little bit of a origin story of how he came on my my radar. I used to implement a Light Planning, which is a driver-based financial modeling tool, going back 2006 2007. Did that pretty intensely for about five years. And I was frustrated, Bruce, that if you want to ta- if you want to read about some of the experts implementing driver based models, or or driver based methodologies, or understanding the driver based mindset, because there's a, there's as much art about driver based modeling than it is a science. Like if it's if you if you love modeling and if you approach it from a scientific point of view, you're going to screw it up. I almost wanted to use a different word. So Dave. Somehow, just through some Googling, I found Dave's website, and it's called Kelblog. And so he is a wonderful, outstanding writer. I mean, he doesn't just throw out some puff pieces periodically. I mean, there is substance, even though the articles are sometimes short. We're not talking Paul Graham essays. We're talking just really good, really uh, uh, bytes of information that you can read maybe five, uh, definitely less than 10 minutes. So that's how Dave came on my radar. And when we started this podcast, Dave was one of the first 10 people I wanted to be able to interview. And I don't, don't even know if I told you that, uh, Bruce, but so let me quit rambling. Have you have you heard of Dave? Had, have you come across his blog?
1: Um, I've not come across his blog, but that's uh, that's something I'll be I'm, I'm, I'm taking notes while you're talking here. Um, it's it's a very familiar name. There's somebody who I think you've 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 spoken of even pre-podcast. Uh, you, you've spoken of of Dave Kellogg and the information that he puts out. Uh, you definitely t- uh, talked about getting him on the podcast almost from the very beginning as well so it's i think it's been a it's in one of the names that you've you've put out i think the thing that's impressive with what you just said is so, so much of the information that comes out today in this on these topics is really just advertising and and lead generation disguised as as real information and something that you can learn from and what you're describing there is not that it's, it's, you know, it sounds genuine. It sounds real. It sounds like something that can be used and maybe, maybe draw you to additional products, but really providing something more, more valuable to the market.
0: All I'm going to say is you are going to love this interview because you have not heard it yet. And I cannot
1: wait, Bruce, for you to uh, hear it. Well, Mark, let's not wait. Let's jump into your interview with Dave Kellogg.
0: Dave, the first thing I want to know is how are you doing during this pandemic?
2: Yeah, thanks for for asking, Mark. I I think um, the businesses I work with are are doing well, in many cases, uh, perversely well. Um, In in our experience, I I work with a lot of analytics companies. And, you know, there's an argument, it's a big cliche that people need the analytics now more than ever right? People forecasting, whole new game in this this world, right? Um, One of the other companies I work with does collaboration and and obviously huge now with everyone working remotely. So, uh, uh, you know, personally and family-wise, we're doing well and the businesses I'm working with are doing well. I feel in many ways blessed to be in Silicon Valley because we were already pretty well set up for work from home environments. It's been traumatic for us.
0: Dave, you were once the CEO of Host Analytics, but I just realized that you have a marketing degree. I don't see that career progression very often from marketing leader to CEO.
2: Yeah, it's uh, thanks for noticing. It's, it's, in my opinion, all too rare, um, especially at the time I did it. Uh, the, the CMO was really not the typical perch uh, in Silicon Valley from which to become a CEO. Far more common was sales. Uh, and then after that, product. Uh, I'd say marketing was you know third in line, if, if that. Um, so maybe CFO would be you know, third, marketing be fourth, right? It, it was not high in the pecking order. So I, I had always felt as kind of somebody who kind of bleeds marketing. Uh, I had always felt marketing was the perfect perch uh, because, um, as one of my favorite marketing professors, Theodore Levitt defines marketing: it's the entire. What is it? It's the company. As seen from the view of the customer. That, that's what marketing is the entire company as seen from the point of view of the customer. Um, so, if you think of marketing with that point of view, then, then it's actually a, a pretty darn good place. Uh, and just kind of more down to earth, you know, in marketing, you work on product, you work on strategy, you work with customers, you work with sales. I mean, you, you are touching a lot of the business.
0: I came across your blog a few years ago, and you're active on Twitter, and I really enjoy hearing you being interviewed. I've watched you on YouTube. Uh, being interviewed after a couple of events, why don't more CEOs write and communicate more often, like you?
2: I think um, it's a really good question, and, and I think the 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 answer is a combination of two things. I think one, um, they're, they're too busy would would be the short term answer. They'd say, "Hey, I'm just so busy, I, I don't have time for that." It, it would be nice to to do that, but but no time. Um, I think beyond that. Uh, I think once in a while, maybe three reasons. Once in a while, I think they try and they try to ghostwrite it. And then that doesn't work. So so, because you end up, you know, it's not the voice of the CEO. It's the voice of a PR person impersonating a CEO. And it tends not to produce good content. So, So I think that that's another reason. Oh, I tried it and it didn't work because um, I didn't really try it. Uh, I think the last reason would be it can make people uncomfortable. I mean, it definitely can make investors uncomfortable. Like, hey, you're doing too much inside baseball here. Um, it could make employees uncomfortable. Hey, did, was that post about me? It's like, no, no. <laughs> I've been in that situation 20 times. I even talked about 10 of them in the blog. It wasn't about you. Um, so, you know, it does have some hazards. And, and I think in general, CEOs are fairly conservative people don't want to rock the boat, don't want to make the board upset. And if you're going to write a blog, uh, it's taking some risk. And the question, I mean, I think the last thing is it might be seen as self-promotion that doesn't help the business. You know, I think some, and very rare, is the CEO who is – good at self-promoting and helping their business you know mark benioff for example or nick meta at a smaller scale are very good at Mm -hmm. promoting themselves and the business but i think sometimes there's always the risk of is that person promoting themselves or the business you know um and and that's definitely not something you, you know not a fight or an argument you want to have with your with your board
0: now that leads me to asking who do you like to follow
2: oh gosh a bunch of them uh it's hard Oh gosh, I don't even know how to answer that. There, there's just a bunch. Um, I can't, I, I can't name names. It's funny. The, uh, I mean, Benioff is, he actually doesn't write, he makes his point of view well known, but, but I think he's a phenomenal leader. As you know, I worked at Salesforce, you know, disclaimer, I, I was there for a year running the service cloud, but, but I think he's a, he's a great leader and I wish he would talk more about his leadership style and how he leads. Uh, he has, he's agreeing. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, But uh, no, in terms of just naming names, uh, there's not like a long list that I wish we're blogging. Uh, There's a long list of CEOs I respect, but no, it's different.
0: Okay, let's turn our attention to to some topics you blog about. What is the state of Enterprise Performance Systems, or EPM, today? And Dave, where is it headed?
2: So it's it's not too broad a question. I I think... You know, when I think about EPM, I think about a couple of different things. Um, uh, Let me do the easy ones first. One, I always viewed EPM as a category as kind of a shotgun wedding between consolidation and planning um, because some industry analysts decided customers wanted to buy those together. And in my opinion, customers never really got that memo. Uh, and it was always a shotgun wedding. You, like most EPM vendors had kind of, you know, in-name only consolidation modules and they were really planning companies or, or the inverse one, well, you know, stream really a consolidation company, but, but has kind of an in-name only planning module. Um, so, so ultimately I think EPM as a thing I, I call it separate bedrooms sometimes. You know, you, you can make planning and consolidation live in the same house, <laughs> but, but they, they sleep in separate bedrooms. Um, so, and I think right now the trend is for planning to become planning. And I think Anaplan in many ways led that. And I think Anaplan was basically, they eschewed consolidation, never really, you know, adaptive, had a super light consolidation module they never cared about just to get on the, the magic quadrant. But Host actually believed in consolidation, but it's, it's hard to serve two masters. And, and Host's primary master, in my opinion, was always a little more planning than consolidation. Consolidation, one stream being the inverse, very focused on consolidation and kind of, you know, just caring a little bit about planning. So I think ultimately EPM as an experiment failed, uh, that, that, that you can't force consolidation and planning. To, they're not one thing. They're two different things bought by two different people for different purposes. So now I'll speak strictly to planning. I agree with you uh, that I think the early generation EPM was really budgeting focused. I think it's become more planning focused, and I think it's become more enterprise. And again, I'll credit Anaplan, to be honest, for, for really the first company to raise their hand and say, we've got to tie sales planning to financial planning. Because this world where sales has their model and finance is their model and they don't match, this is not a good world. And by the way, why is the marketing model tied in, right? And and I think they've executed less well, frankly, in other areas. (laughs) I think they've done okay in sales and in supply chain. Marketing, not so much. I'm working, for example, with a marketing planning company called Plana, Plug, um, where they're focusing specifically on marketing planning. Also, Alacadia, who I'm not working with, but is founded by a friend of mine, right? So there, there are specialized marketing planning companies coming up because that need has not been met. Um, But I think the point is, yes, the third generation of VPM is really about planning. And and to me, it's about planning and it's about the enterprise. It's also about the cloud. I mean, I I think that's another trend, right, taking this stuff from on-prem to the cloud. CFOs, you know, change is good, you go first, right, was said by CFO, undoubtedly, you know. Um, So so they were slow to move to the cloud. Um, I think the last thing uh, I would say... Uh, Well, maybe that's it. It, It's become integrated and it's become cloud. Oh, I know what the last thing is. As part of becoming cloud, it's become more accessible because EPM was always great technology. It was just a question of who could afford it. Right, Hyperion was wonderful, mm-hmm. but it was expensive, right? And, and and so one of the nice things about Cloud EPM was it enabled you know small and medium businesses to, to to get off Excel and use a real planning system. Now, unfortunately, I think AnaPlan has continued that tradition of exorbitant price, right, where it's only accessible to the to the biggest companies with the biggest checkbooks, and I do think. There's a generation kind of, or this way, a market disruption opportunity to bring Anaplan style modeling across the enterprise to smaller businesses. Because right now, just like they couldn't afford Hyperion 20 years ago, they can't afford Anaplan today. Um, so, so there's a couple dimensions there.
0: Okay, but what about analytics such as Power BI, Tableau, or Click?
2: Yeah, that's one of these age-old questions. That's a tough one. I mean, first, I would say to speak to my old employer, but I keep calling them host analytics because that's what they were called when I was there. But, but, but Planful, and, and, and Planful, for what it's worth, is strong in mid-market, right? They're one of the vendors bringing kind of luxury class EPM to smaller businesses, so, so you don't have to write a million-dollar check to get it. You can write a $100,000 check, roughly speaking, right, to get a system like Planful. And, and, and I think the answer, unfortunately, and I hate to say this, is both. I think EPM vendors should include some Baseline reporting, like for financial reporting off the budget, for financial reporting for monthly. And by the way, most BI tools are actually pretty bad at making financial reports. You, you, if you try to make a and L business objects, you'd kill yourself, right? So, so it, it, it couldn't do it because because financial reports kind of go across, whereas BI reports kind of go down. Um, exactly <laughs> orientation difference. Um, so I think uh, I think the answer is. EPM vendors need to include their own reporting. Like some people just dump to Excel, like back in the day, Adaptive was famous for saying, yeah, we, we do. They can just put everything in Excel, knock yourself out. Right. Which was, I don't know if they fixed that, but that that's probably too far one direction. Right. Um, but I don't think they should take on and try and become general purpose uh, BI vendors because, because that's, there's a lot of great tools for visualization, as you mentioned, Tableau or for reporting or data discovery or dashboarding. So you need to, strike this balance of trying to figure out what should be included with the EPM tool versus where the company will go best to breed. And like I said, I think the answer ends up inevitably being both, which is I need to help you particularly with the financial reporting.
0: You recently wrote about the rule of 40. So first I'll let you provide a definition of the rule of 40, but then address do some CEOs and founders put too much emphasis or weight on sales growth versus profit?
2: So, uh, yeah, let's talk about the rule of 40. So first, I think the rule of 40 came out of the 2008 market meltdown. Um, And and I think the thinking was, hey, let's stop evaluating companies, SaaS companies, purely on revenue growth. Let's try and look at how they balance growth and profit. So that was kind of where it came from. And somebody said, "Let's, let's look at it. And by the way, would some measure that was a balance of growth and profit have a higher R squared to enterprise multiple than just growth itself, right? That was actually the hypothesis. And it did, right? In in the early days, 2009, 2010, whatever, um, there was a stronger R squared. And that's always an interesting question to me, what correlates better to enterprise multiple EV divided by revenue multiple? What correlates mm-hmm. better revenue growth alone or rule of 40 score? And for a long, long time, it's been rule of 40 score. Um, so, So, and, and in my mind, these, these are, Facts, not opinion, right? Um, Now, now look, the the first thing I always like to say about Rule of 40 is all the data we see on it is from public SaaS companies right? So it breaks my heart when a $30 million SaaS company is talking about hitting the rule of 40, because it's like, you know, all that data is from companies that have made it to $150 million in ARR. They've raised on me, you know, they've raised an average of $300 million in private capital. They were growing at 100% when they were your size. Their rule of 40 score probably stunk when they were your size, right? So so let's, there's a sample bias thing that people forget. And sometimes I think boards unfairly try to take little companies and say, you should worry about rule of 40 score, because the question isn't what is Annaplan's Rule of 40 score today. It's what was Annaplan's Rule of 40 score when they were a $50 million company, right, like we are. So, so I think that that's the number one form of abuse I see on the Rule of 40. Uh, the number one thing I think the Rule of 40 is useful for is just kind of remembering that there should be a growth of profitability. And what Rule of 40 score is, by the way, is uh, roughly speaking, different people use slightly different metrics, but it's supposed to balance revenue and profit. Profit, and then which revenue should it be subscription revenue or all revenue. I tend to just say all revenue. Some people might take ARRs as opposed to revenue. right? You, these are all the nuances. But the idea is revenue plus operating profit equals rule of 40 score. Uh, for operating profit, most people use free cash flow. So I'd say the, 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 the most standard definition I know of rule of 40 is revenue growth plus operating cash flow margin equals rule of 40 score. And then that outputs a number. And if you put that number on the x-axis and you put enterprise value uh, EV divided by revenue on the y-axis, i.e. your enterprise multiple, enterprise value multiple, um, that's where you get the really interesting charts. And that's where you draw the regression line and say, hmm, how well do these things correlate? And the answer is pretty well on average. It it varies between an R squared, I don't know, around 0.3 and 0.6. And typically, it explains more. Than revenue alone. Although I think most recently it was actually explaining less. <laughs> I think the last time I wrote about it, um, in, in this kind of frothy days of SaaS, uh, it looks like revenue growth alone is a better predictor of enterprise multiple. But I can't remember.
0: What, in your opinion, is the rule of forty sweet spot for businesses under one hundred million or even seventy-five million in size?
2: Yeah. I thought about doing a blog post on this. I was going to make like zones. I, I haven't never done it yet, but rule of 40 zones, right. To make different zones on the map where you want to be. Um, and I've not done it yet. I, I look, I, and this is going to reveal a little bit my inbuilt bias. I mean, I work mostly mostly with venture backed startups and in, in the right. world I'm in. Revenue growth is a big, big, big deal and it drives value. So, so, you know, 40-0, um, you know, cause as long as you're – and remember, as long as that's cash flow. So if you can grow 40% without burning cash, power to you, and you should do it. Right. Um, the question is, should you share it for 50, negative 10? And then that, that gets to be a financing question, uh, which we can go into if you want to. But But I, I'd say in general – Grow as fast as you can, keep your free cash flow at zero unless you have something else better to do with cash than put it into growth.
0: Dave, I know you work with a number of SaaS startups there in Silicon Valley. What are some of the metrics that you focus on?
2: Yeah, so I'll give you a curveball answer, then the real answer. So the curveball answer is I always – one of my favorite questions to ask uh, like a SaaS CEO is like, hey, what's the number for this quarter? What, what, what are you guys shooting for this quarter? What's the number? Or that big deal you're talking about, how big is that deal? And, and the actual test is what unit they answer in, right, which tells you more. than Because if they answer in bookings, in my mind, not a good thing. If they answer in TCV, not a good thing, right, the, the, the A-plus grade is answering in an ARR, right? So, so, so the very first thing I like to test is, is what, what, are you, what unit. Because all companies do this. They don't even think about it that way. But you say, how big is the Acme deal? They're going to say 512. And you say 512 what? Um, And and the answer to that question is like super telling. And uh, so that's the first thing is is what unit do they think about deals in? Um, What is the number? If I say, what's the number for this quarter? And they say 10, I say 10 what, right? So because sometimes you'll you'll hear bookings. Sometimes you'll hear ending ARR. Sometimes you'll hear net new ARR. Um, You'll hear a lot of different things. Um, but once we get by the units question, the actual metrics I care about are probably you know, look. If you wanted me to value a SaaS company, I think I need to know two things. Uh, the first order valuation would be ARR and ARR growth rate, and, and right there I can probably get a pretty tight window on the valuation. You know, a, after I, I want to know what's the next thing I'd want to know. I'd want to know churn and or net dollar retention rate, and I'd probably want to know both. To be honest, I'd want to know gross churn right? How much stuff is leaking out before upsell? And then I want to know debt dollar retention rate, which is a cohort-based retention rate and non-survivor biased, right? Don't tell me all the customers now and what they had last year. Tell me all the people who were customers last year and what they have now, right? Which is a a popular way to pervert the metric by survivor biasing it. So I'd want to know non-survivor biased, net dollar retention rate. I'd want to know uh, ARR growth rate and I'd want to know gross churn rate. And with those three things, I know a lot. After that, then second order, services percent of revenue. It's rare these days, but once in a while, you'll find a SaaS company that isn't a SaaS company. Holy cow, you're a service company in disguise, right? If that number is too big, um, and somewhere between 20 and 30 percent to me is the socially acceptable maximum. I mean, once you're getting a above 30, I'm going to have to start stripping it out to devaluation metrics and other things, right? Um, and, and once you get close to 40 or 50, I start wondering if you're a software company or a services company, right? So, so, so that radically changes your valuation. Um, I think subscription gross margin, I'm just kind of thinking top to bottom on the P&L at this point, but super important. Uh, obviously, some companies hide sales costs there, some companies hide services costs there. Um, I, I'm a big believer that if you run a highly negative gross margin consulting business, you should actually add that cost to your CAC because you're kind of sweeping <laughs> cost of sale into services um, or, or add it to tech support cost COGS. Um, so uh, uh, and then after that, what would I care about? I mean, that's really hit the big ones. Well, I guess CAC would be the next one. I've already talked about it, but customer acquisition cost. So how much does it cost to put a dollar of ARR in the bucket? So if you tell me how full the bucket is, how fast it's growing, what the margin is on the ARR in the bucket, not too much of the services, how much leaks out, and how much it costs to put a dollar in, I've got a pretty darn good picture of your company, right? Uh, j- just right there.
0: NPS. NPS. Do you like it or not? Can it be too easily gamed?
2: Yeah. It's great, great question. By the way, I thought you were going to say I forgot cash, which I did. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> which is oxygen. I consider cash oxygen. It's like a scuba diver forgetting to look at the tank meter. Uh, so, so, yes, I always look at cash. Um, to answer my own question, on your question, NPS, look, uh, I'm a fan of NPS. I didn't used to be, to be honest. Um, there's things I don't like about it. It's kind of a drama metric, right? By, 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 by taking only the most happy customers, right? The nines and the tens and then subtracting the one through sixes, you're kind of amplifying signal. Right. And, and distorting in some ways signal. But but the good news is you're generating signal because if you tell somebody your NPS is negative 20, that does get a reaction. If you say your CSAT is 3.2 versus 3.7, it doesn't get a reaction. Right. So so I think NPS in some ways, it, it, it it's kind of a deliberate distortion filter to amplify signal and it works. <laughs> so so that's one thing I like about it. Uh, the other thing I like about it, of course, in the spirit of this podcast, is it's benchmarkable. and We all love benchmarking stuff, so I can find out right. what my friend's NPS is, right? Um, uh, for whatever it's worth, I, I track NPS and intent to renew separately. When I run a survey, I ask both questions, <laughs> and they're loosely correlated. A, a lot of people assume you. one equals the other. <laughs> it's like, I know Good lots of... point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. I know happy customers who don't renew, and I know unhappy customers who do. So so let's not assume that one equals the other. Uh, In terms of actually measuring the metric, which you asked about, you know, yes, it can go wrong. I think – I don't know what the established best practice is, but a lot of companies I work at, let's take financial planning. Hey, the VP of FP&A buys that software. That's the person who renews that software. Every manager with the budget in the company uses that software. What if they all hate it, but the VP of FP&A is happy? How do we interpret that, right? So, so you need to segment that NPS score by role. And frankly, as a business person, I care most about the buyer, right? If all the budget managers are happy and the VP of FP&A is miserable, well, I'm probably not going to get my renewal. Uh, conversely, if all the users are miserable, then then I might still get it. Uh, I may not. So, so I think the number one thing I think I on NPS, is is I'm going to call it aggregation or summarization, because it could be, and and I picked a pretty simple scenario. In the real world of financial planning, you may have 10 business units, each with their own head of FP&A, three divisional CFOs, thousands of end users, right? And how do you aggregate that data? It shouldn't be one person, one vote. How do you split it into roles? So so I'm a big believer in role-based NPS uh, is the short answer to that question. The other thing I would say on MPS, and this is a recent one I discovered, you get different scores if you ask on the telephone versus via survey. And all the benchmark data is off a survey. And I know some companies who do it via phone. And that's like free 20-point credit because <laughs> people are nice when they're on the phone. So, so that's my new NPS question as an investor is, how did you do that survey? Was that, I talked to me, and how hard did you pester people to reply? And most importantly, did you ask them on the phone with a live human or, or did you mail them an online survey?
0: Dave, back in 2014, you wrote a blog post on why I like driver-based modeling. Remember it? I loved it. And by the way, Dave, Google it. It's near the top in the search listing. So walk me through that entry. Why do you like driver-based modeling so much?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. You, you, you may not. We'll see if I reproduce the same answer or not. Um, so, uh, look, I like it. I'll, I'll tell you why. I, when, I'll tell you the story behind it. When I joined Host Analytics, um, I had spent most of my career in enterprise on-premises software, uh, the, the, you know, the perpetual license model. And 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 I think one of the one of the one trick question I ask people now, who who have not worked yet in SaaS, is do you think SaaS is hard? Do you think SaaS is really different, or is it just kind of on prem with different cash flow? Um, and, and the more you say, oh, it's the same thing with different cash flow, the more you fail the test, right? Uh, and and the more you have humility and go, it may not look that different, but it's really really different. Um, that, that that's how you pass the test. And one of the ways I learned that was by doing the – look, when I joined Host Analytics, the first thing I did was build a three-year driver-based model myself. Um, so, so, so part of the reason I took the job is I'm, I view myself as kind of a closet FPNA person. I like fp I a like, I've always gotten along really well with my fp person, even as a CMO. right? I, like, to a certain extent, I always thought finance people were kind of a pain in the neck. Um, until I met FP and like one day I got to be a big enough guy with a big enough department that I had a dedicated VP of FP&A. And i am like, this guy's cool. I finally found a useful finance person. Like I really like this person because they think about the future. They think like I do, they think about models. And, and they're not just pestering me about budgets and approvals. Um, and that was kind of, I'll never forget when I discovered fp um, and And it was like, Oh, I didn't know this, this thing existed, but it's really cool. Um, so, so I've always been drawn to that. And and I joined Host and I built a model and you just realize, I don't know, this is just stupid stuff you realize, like churn is multiplicative. Like, holy cow, if it's 100 with a 90% churn rate, after one year it's 80, and after two years it's 72, and after three years it's 63, and, you know, oh my God. Uh, And and you you get these realizations. I mean, the macro point being only when you – the drivers are the levers of the business. The metaphor, I don't know if I use it in the post, it's like prime factorizing a number. Um, One day, we'll probably edit this out, but my my kid was probably in sixth grade and he came up with a math problem. How many zeros does like 137 factorial end with? And I'm like, how the heck do you answer that problem? Um, Because they deliberately picked a number too big to go into a calculator. It was too big to go into a spreadsheet. So you had to think. And the answer was, oh, wait a minute. If I prime factorize that number... I can tell you how many fives are in it. I can tell you how many twos are in it. Therefore, I can tell you how many tens are in it. And that's how many zeros it ends with. Uh, and that was the answer to the problem. But, but so, so you had to kind of look into the guts of the number to answer the question. And I've always felt that the drivers in a driver-based model are those guts. What are the real levers? Like in a software company, it's sales productivity. It's sales ramping time. Right. It's how many sales reps. Right. What else is a, is a driver? Uh, well, churn rate would be a huge driver in a SaaS company. Expansion rate is a huge driver. So, so to me, the kind of mathematical guy and minimalist of me views driver based planning as a super cool problem as to what's the minimum number of drivers I need to, act, to get a good model of this business. Right? And, and the number one thing that goes wrong in driver-based planning is people don't take that view and, and they, they have 87,000 drivers. That doesn't work. But, <laughs> but I, I think it's a very cool kind of math problem. And ultimately, it forces you to say, what are the actual levers that matter in my business? And then even better, you get to play with them, right? And you get to have a model. And so to me, you, you do, it, it's almost a teaching tool to teach you how your business works. And by the way, these businesses are complex and you can't do it in your head. I'm pretty good at my head math. I know a lot of people who are. You can't do this stuff in your head. You need to go build the model. So, so I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. I'd say it's largely just for understanding. I had to pick a single word.
0: Dave, we're getting near the end. You work with a lot of financial leaders. What advice do you have for CFOs, uh, controllers, VPs of finance, and all other financial
2: leaders? I think it's the same answer, happily. Uh, Look, the answer to me, and this is going to sound cliche, but it's not, is the, the, what I call the elusive business partner, right? Like every finance person says they want to be a business partner, right? It's easy to say, it's a whole heck of a lot harder to do. Um, so that, and it's always been my theme with finance is, is, and it's not hard to get a bunch of senior finance people around and say, who wants to be a business partner? And, and everybody will raise their hand, right? That's not hard. The hard part is how do we do that? And what does a good business partner do? And what does that mean? Um, and uh, look, every board I'm on, I tell the CEO, you want a business partner. And by and large, some people won't like this. I say, try to hire an FPA person because it, it, it either hire an experienced CFO, but if it's a first time CFO or, or a CFO by background, get somebody who spent time in FPA. Why? Because you, as a CEO, need to live in the future. And you want somebody who can go live in the future with you. And when you're living in the future, you're living in that driver-based model, right? What about next year? What about two years from now? What if we hire five salespeople now? What if we could change the churn rate? What if we hire sales enablement to increase sales productivity, right? So we drop 100 k into sales enablement. That drives up productivity. by how much? What's the impact, right? Um, so I think the answer is you want to be a, a business partner. I happily think that you know the memo was out. Everybody knows that. More and more people are getting the memo. Um, And the business partner to me, you know, the short speech is they're on the bridge of the enterprise. You know, the the, the joke that some finance people say is most CFOs are on the back of the boat analyzing the wake. Right, (laughs) they're they're looking off, telling you all about the wake, um, and and, you know the good ones are are on the bridge of the boat, uh, helping pilot the future. And and I believe that that's what a CEO like having been a CEO twice for over a decade, that's what I need in a CFO. I want somebody helping me with all these hard decisions. I want somebody bringing data. In many ways, my joke was, I want Mr. Spock or Mrs. Spock. I don't care, but but you know I want somebody who's got a lot of data uh, at their disposal and who can analyze that data and help me make decisions. And that's what I think the business partner is. They they really can become your trusted right-hand person to help you drive the enterprise. It's, It's really unique in the CFO because the CFO gets to be a little bit out of the functional squabble right? <laughs> it's not sales and marketing fighting like cats and dogs because cats and dogs always fight or sales and customer service fighting because cats and dogs always fight or R&D fighting with marketing or there's a lot of kind of cat dog relationships set up. And in my mind, finance isn't careful. They can end up one of those cats and dogs. Um, th- what they want to really be is above it all. Um, and they want to be trying to be a business partner. So I, I think happily we're seeing more of that out there and that's definitely my advice to anybody in finance obsess yourself with this concept of business partnership try to figure out what it means it's not just a cliche uh and try to learn how to become a good one
0: okay okay then regarding business partnering does that financial leader need a strong acumen in marketing sales and operations
2: yeah I, i'd say it's necessary uh, uh for sure so, so so for sure you want somebody who me, almost goes without saying they need to understand the whole business uh, and how it works um they need to understand the key metrics in the areas of the business you, you want a, a cfo in some ways you want a cfo who could be i, I remember one time when i was a business object so i did an investor relations meeting because everyone else was, was sick uh, and i did it and at the end of the guy in the middle of the interview the investor was like are you cmo or coo Right. Because every question I, and that's the same thing you want the CFO, right? It would be great to be confused with COO. (laughs) That's kind of a, a by the way,
0: I bet, I bet that was a compliment, wasn't it?
2: Oh, absolutely. It was a compliment. I, I took it as a huge compliment. And it was like, yeah, I know the business well enough and the whole business, not just the marketing pipeline and how to do branding. Right. I understand our business. Ask me about tech support. Ask me about services. Ask me about license. Right. I, I understand the business. Um, and, and I think the same thing has to be true. Like you'd like to be confused. I would say if you go to a cocktail party and it took them half an hour to figure out you were CFO, not COO, that would be a really good thing.
0: Time now for a question we ask all of our guests. We're not going to let you off the hook. What would be your TEDx talk at a local university?
2: It would probably be on how to get into the head of your buyer or your internal consumer. I, I'm, and this is where my marketing colors come out. I, I'm a, and By the way, one of the things I loved about selling host analytics was we had one buyer, VP of FP&A. So it was like a dream. I could just go try and deeply, deeply understand what, who, who they are, what they care about, what their backgrounds are, right? Because then I could really, really understand them. And then I could figure out how to build software for them, how to sell to them, how to approach them, et cetera. Uh, and just as somebody who's, and by the way, when you sell technology platforms, you don't get to do that because they solve 87 different problems. So, 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 you know, the good news about having a platform is you can solve 87 different problems. The bad news is you don't have one persona to go to go deeply learn. So, so if I gave a TED Talk, it would really be about personas, um, and it would be about getting to the head of your customer, either internal or external, right? Like, like if I'm trying to, like my internal customer, if I'm a CMO, which I've been by background, is the VP of sales. So, so let me understand the kind of empathy, their world, what they worry about, what they think about, and then I can serve them. And for CFOs, certainly, it's got to be the CEO on the board. What are they worried about? What do they care about? Because to me, the more you can do that, the more you can answer all the other questions yourself. <laughs> right? If you've actually you know, kind of internalized deeply what it's like to walk in the CFO's shoes, you've got to figure out what messaging is going to work, what, what you know, what, what concerns are going to resonate? I mean, you know, there's no excuse for discovery and sales. You can always also ask. <laughs> but, but marketing, you don't have, have the luxury of asking, right? You have to make a real good educated guess. Um, so that's probably where I come from on this. But it would be about personas and, and empathy.
0: Dave, you have a blog post listing some of your favorite books. That's another question we ask all of our guests. What are some of your favorite titles?
2: Sure, sure. So I think uh, – and I'm in a strategy phase now. I'm usually in a strategy phase. So um, uh, a lot of my favorite books are on strategy. I think my, my single favorite strategy book right now is called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. And, and the thing I like about it so much is it tears apart all the crap that passes for, for strategy. Because <laughs> I get so tired of going to companies and asking what the strategy is and seeing templates and, and just all this stuff that is, to me, filling in forms, but but not actually answering the real questions about strategy. Like, what situation are we in? What are we going to do about it? How are we going to win? What is winning? You know, like like if you can't answer those questions, you don't have a strategy. And you may have lots of templates and business plans and, and other crap, but you don't have a strategy. And No KRs. And, and you can have all that other stuff, but if it's not bound together, it's not a strategy. So I'd say a good strategy – Bad strategy is probably my current top recommendation. Blue Ocean Strategy is another favorite book of mine. It's more about how to try and carve out some open space, right? They they call Red Ocean where it's all full of blood because there's lots of people waiting for it. Blue Ocean has got no sharks in it. Um, My favorite example from that book is Cirque du Soleil because what I like about that book, and it should be appealing to CFOs, is, is it breaks a business down into a number of levers and it argues that you know, clowns, Cirque du Soleil has them. So do regular circuses. Rings, Cirque du Soleil has one. Ringling Brothers has three. Animals, uh, Cirque du Soleil doesn't have them. Right, Storyline, Cirque du Soleil does have it. Regular circus doesn't have one. Named acts, Cirque du Soleil doesn't have them. The performers are anonymous, right? And, and you go through and you take these 20 levers and just by setting them in different positions, all of a sudden you've created a different kind of circus right? And and you have no competitors. No one else is selling that product. So I love that that book for its kind of deep, out-of-the-box thinking. Um, Mm -hmm. In terms of other books that come to mind for stuff that I like, uh, let me just think here. Uh, It's hard to say. I mean, I'm just actually flipping through my Kindle right now, as you asked, which may have – May slow me down here. I mean, I like the lean startup. I like Lost and Founder, if you ever want to really understand, because so many, I mean, here's another rant. What?
0: It's, Rand Fishkin, is that correct?
2: Yeah, yeah. The uh, Look, I mean, here's a little bit the problem with Silicon Valley Media. They act like every company is going to become a Decacorn, right? And, and the only stories that get told are the enormous successes, and almost no one writes about what you are likely to experience, right? And, and Rand Fishkin, created uh, Moz, which is a pretty darn successful SEO company, right? Exactly. Uh, He's not a billionaire. They're not worth $5 billion. They're not public, but I'm guessing it's a $100 billion plus company that he created out of nothing, I think with his mom, if I remember the story. Um, So, uh, and he tells you it's a real walk in the shoes of a founder. So I love that book because it's kind of contrarian. Um, And uh, I guess another book, this is more the marketing book that people might like, but Words That Work. It's a great marketing book about words and yeah. word selection by Frank Luns, a pollster.
0: Dave, I, I could listen to you all day, we, and we had to skip some questions because of time. I apologize, and this was certainly a grand slam conversation. And here's hoping we get to talk again in the future.
2: Yeah, Mark, thanks so much for having me. Uh, really enjoyed doing it. Let's uh, let's do it again sometime.
0: Bruce, we could rehash. Every single thing he said that was so good, Bruce. We didn't even get to hit all of my questions. Now, Dave did. He did say near the end. It was either yeah, it was near the end. He said, "You know, maybe we can do this again." It's like, okay. <laughs> I mean, I didn't say it out loud. It was like, okay, okay. Um, but there's one thing I do want to mention, and I you're going to go off on this, or you're you're gonna you're gonna agree. So near the end, he talks about. He even somewhat apologetically said, "You know, it sounds like a, a cliche, but but financial leaders, CFOs, they, they need to be, they need to be, you know, those business partners for the CEO." And it's like, yeah, it could be a cliche because there's a lot of, a lot of the articles that we read from CFO.com. Uh, I think there's a new one, CFO You hear that over and over. But Dave, it's like when he started talking about financial leaders being a business partner. It's like, yeah, absolutely. So, is it fair to say that Bruce Reed is a business partner to his CEO?
1: I, I'm a business partner to my CEO, and I wish to be, and I'm always striving to be more of a business partner uh, to the CEO. There's there's the business partner who's got a who's kind of within the 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 four walls and the expanded four walls of finance, and then there's the the business partner that's intimately involved in operations, that's ensuring that your 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 operation shops are operating operating at efficiency and producing what they should be. There there's the the, the business partner that's also a you know that is the a data you know a data junkie there is ensuring that there's whether it's operational metrics financial metrics and the various drivers of business success are being are being looked at and the business is being successful you know and so you've really got to step up to that next uh, to that next level and really put yourself out there to be the true partner to your ceo
0: when so in my practice i do work with other young cfos some of them are controllers and one of the exercises we go through, it's, it's just a little mental, it's a mental thought exercise. I have them uh, draw a circle about the size of a half a dollar. And that half a dollar in the middle of the page represents reporting and administration. Reporting and administration. So it's a half a dollar. Then I have them draw a circle outside, not a, outside of it, but they draw another circle. And, and think of a, think of a, a dartboard. So it's it's an outer circle, and that circle represents finance, finance. And then there is a final circle, that's a bigger circle, and that represents business. And then everything outside the business is going to be external. It's going to be the competition. It's going to be it's going to be regulatory, Issues that your company may or may not have to deal with on a daily or quarterly, annual, annual basis. So, my question for these young CFOs is where are you in those circles? And hopefully, they're at the cusp of that business circle. That's when you become the business partner. Now, there's nothing wrong with being inside that finance circle or just the reporting and administration. It just means you're probably really good at one thing maybe you're more of a controller by the way controllers are awesome i used to be a controller it's some of my favorite work in my 30 some odd year career so i'm just saying business partner what circle are you in it needs to be the outer circle near the cusp of it
1: do you agree bruce oh yeah you can't be you can't be that highly focused accountant and be and be the business partner i think you said you said and and illustrated better what I was trying to say initially is that you you've got to you, you have to be in that outer circle to really be a business partner. Other than that, you're just you're you're a, a valuable employee, but none, but you can't call yourself a business partner.
0: And I would just add, we use the word business, maybe that needs to be defined. So business is really there's only three parts in business. You need to you need to find a customer, you need to get a customer. And then you need to serve that customer for life. And now that may get, that's tweaked a little bit in the retail or the B2C world, but especially in B2B, but boy, find a customer, get a customer, keep a customer. And those, you have to have an acumen that not only understands it, but you can go toe to toe with the marketing team, with the sales team, with the operations team. That's what I'm calling business.
1: It seems so simple, but if the, the bookstores wouldn't be stocked with, with, with books all the way down the shelf on business if there wasn't some complexity to it or if there wasn't some lack of understanding or inability to grasp that very simple concept. Bruce,
0: sir, the amazing CFO, which by the way, it's an honor to be able to do this with you. Can you uh, take us home, sir?
1: Mark, it's always an honor to do this with you. Everybody out there, be safe, be well. Let's treat each other with love and empathy. And we'll talk to you again soon.